Women's Fight Back, 8th of the 3rd, 2020, page 9. Against Sex-Based Feminism by Kathy Nugent. Quote, Feminists do not conflate sex and gender. Sex is a scientific term for one's biology, and this cannot be changed. As materialists, we believe the root of women's oppression lies in her biology, a view underpinning socialist theory for generations. Gender theory does not provide an alternative credible analysis and it is regressive. Queer theorists see the intimate connection between biological sex and oppression and react by trying to dismantle the notion of biological sex, while socialists and feminists react by seeking to dismantle oppression. From the Women's Place UK website. One of the founding ideas of modern feminism was that in spite of biological sex, women's lives are shaped by cultural interpretations of sex differences. Though that those ideas are what constitute gender ideology and our own perceptions of our gender identity. To paraphrase Simone de Beauvoir, nothing about being called female at birth determines what kind of life a woman will lead and what it means to be a woman. And where you live in the world, what century you were born in, are two gigantic sets of variables right there. That's why socialist feminists focused on the social institutions that generated cultural meaning about sex difference and which helped to prop up systemic, systematic discrimination against women. For us, the family, laws, the state were always at, at least linked to and often determined by the same structures which generate class explo exploitation. In other words, as in life, Biological sex differences do not matter anywhere near as much as gender. But by the early 1980s, radical and cultural feminists were pushing against this materialist feminism, arguing for innate differences based on or strongly connected to biology. Now, again, some self-proclaimed self socialist feminists are trying to resurrect biological determinism. The leading lights in the coalition around Women's Place UK set up to block legal reforms enabling transgender people to register a change of gender by self-declaration, do call themselves socialist feminists, and yet they foreground biological sex differences in a number of ways. Firstly, biological sex difference is important for instrumental reasons. Their argument is that provisions in the 2010 Equality Act, which makes sex a protected characteristic, would be undermined if trans people were allowed to self-declare their gender. The perceived threat here being that self-declaration would reinforce the idea that gender, rather than sex, is innate. Except, of course, while gender is not innate, it can be deconstructed as much as it can be constructed. It is also nigh on impossible for humans to, for humans to choose their gender identity. It is something they must live with. So why not let people tell the world without paternalistic complications? Then the government said it had no plans to change the Equality Act and protected characteristics were safe. Still, the trans sceptics were not satisfied. The GRA reform would, they said, lead to, an abusive, lead to abusive males self-declaring themselves to be women and trying to access women-only safe spaces. The argument here is that the GRA will embolden abusive men to declare themselves to be trans women. Why they would need to do that when they have plenty of other easier options to be abusive is not explained. The implication is that trans women will all, always be biological male, that men are inherently predisposed to violence and that the GRA reforms would therefore speak to and enable abusive men. 
It is that crude. Thankfully, trans people can seek and get help from domestic violence and similar services with and without a gender recognition certificate. Professionals only have to be certain that the person coming to them for help needs their help and the service that they can offer meets their needs. Another form of biological determinism that has seeped into the debate is that women's oppression is based on her biology, specifically her childbearing capacities and the necessity of child rearing. But the biological realities of bearing and bringing up children have made these activities socialised for most of human history. Women tend to die if they do not get experienced help pushing another human down the birth canal and children haven't until recently been raised by the village as the saying goes. The point is that we have to have a more nuanced understanding of biology in order to understand what human childbearing and childrearing is and then step back from biological explanations in order to see how they became progressively but never entirely individualistic endeavours. In any case, in advanced Western societies, IVF, contraception, adoption and just not bothering with reproduction have all become options for all people and have revolutionised childbirth. My 19-year-old daughter often remarks that if she had been born 100 years ago, she would be pregnant by now. We can't quite get our heads around that, and yet we should. We want all women around the world to enjoy human progress. So why are we holding on to the threat of this aspect of our biology as if it childbearing was the same as it was a hundred years ago. Another way in which biology is foregrounded is in opposition to called so-called trans orthodoxy. This is the idea that trans activists and allies conflate sex and gender and in so doing dismantled the notion of biological sex differences. I've already stated that there is no need to conflate the two in order to win the argument that biology isn't all that, but let's expand a bit with a few observations. The human species is only weakly dimorphic. Nothing between our ears is very dimorphic and it certainly doesn't determine our sex. This used to be a key argument for feminists wishing to deconstruct reactionary gender ideologies. Why is it only now that we must pay more attention to the sex differences? Biological sex difference plays very little role in our lives until puberty. There are a lot of very important years between zero and puberty. Our secondary sex characteristics arise from complex interactions between hormones, environments and genes. All humans have a mix of female and male hormones and the levels of difference in the mixes are not as great as is commonly thought. Atypical variations in the things that make up biological sex are not unusual. Biological sex difference is something, but it isn't all that, nor is it static. It can be reshaped by the environment and, as it turns out, by human intervention. A variant of the argument that biology can't be dismantled is one which says that extreme gender ideologists dematerialise true social real realities, i.e. biology, that social feelings like gender cannot be all-encompassing basis for determining how people act and think. This argument is not even consistent with the central argument of mo modern feminism with which I began, that gender is constructed at an early age. Judith Butler explains how it all works well in a materialist and down-to-earth way. The institutional forms of power and knowledge we are born into precede, form and orchestrate whatever existential choices we come to make. Sex and gender are constructed in a way that is neither fully determined 
nor fully chosen, but rather caught up in a recurrent tension between determinism and freedom. We do live in a rigidly gendered society, but fortunately we have 50 years of gender being messed up. People do feel like they have choices, hence women who have found that they like to be manly and boys try to play with the wrong toys. However, if you want to say that gender roles are not changing very much, that patriarchy is not only strong but reasserting itself, and in the form of trans women invading women-only spaces, you need to have something you want to define as innate to make your argument. The Women's Place UK Coalition have turned to the idea of sex-based oppression to do that. It seems to me that the feminists who want to do this, for political reasons, are trying to impose a rather one-sided materiality, a biology-first materiality, but it is actually more like a moral order. People who need to get out of the straitjacket of their biology and the identities associated with it are being pathologised and demonised. That may be rooted in an opposition to women's oppression, but it is utterly reactionary nonetheless. Gender diversity is a material part of human existence and it is here to stay. Myth-busting. A report supporting trans women in domestic and sexual violence services published by Stonewall and NFP Synergy in July 2018 established. One in four women, 27%, experienced domestic violence in their lifetime. In the previous 12 months alone, 7.5% of women had experienced domestic violence. Trans women are at a heightened risk. In the same period, 16% had experienced domestic abuse from a partner. That while trans and cis women may experience similar patterns of abuse, many trans survivors also face specific forms of abuse related to their trans identity. This may include withholding medication or preventing treatment, withholding consent, thereby preventing them from getting a gender recognition certificate, in cases where the trans person married their partner before transitioning, misusing pronouns and preventing them from sharing their gender identity with others, convincing their partner that they would not be believed because they are trans. One in four trans survivors of abuse do not go on to report it. The report shared the results of a study of domestic and sexual violence service providers aiming to understand their views of the proposed changes to the Gender Recognition Act. It found... While respondents were aware of a view that gender recognition reform would allow violent men to pose as women to access their services, they said that gender recognition reform would not compromise their ability to protect their service against or turn away any abusive individual using safeguarding procedures. No participants said they have used the Equality Act exemption to deny support to a trans survivor. Some participants said that the exemption should be kept as a safeguard while others were concerned about other services using the exemption to turn away trans survivors when they should be, be, be providing support. Participants stated that more needs to be done to support trans survivors, arguing that trans voices need to be at the heart of these initiatives. Participants said that funding cuts are the main threat facing their services and called for increased funding for all services, including women-only services, specialist services for LGBT survivors and services for BAME women. Refuge reports cuts to 80% of its services since 2011, with these having been cut up to 50%. Women's Aid, meanwhile, states that 70% of specialist domestic violence services have been lost altogether. 
it is clear that domestic and sexual violence services are already being run in a trans-inclusive and sensitive way for all survivors. The service providers are calling loudly for the reversal of cuts and for trans survivors to be directly and centrally involved in shaping these services going forward. If we are concerned about protecting women, then these are voices we should be listening to. Women's Fight Back, 8th of the 3rd, 20, page 11. Fighting Sexual Harassment at Work by Becky Crocker. According to the TUC, 50% of women have been sexually harassed at work and 4 out of 5 women say they don't feel able to report sexual harassment to their employer. And so while it's positive that the TUC's 2020 Heart Unions Week foregrounded sexual harassment and the campaign for a new law to make employers do more to stamp it out, our unions could and should be doing much more to challenge conditions, conditions that silence women in the workplace. This is no accident. Sexism and bureaucratisation combine to marginalise the issue of sexual harassment in the trade union movement. I realised this very current truth when reading a story of women workers' struggle that happened over a 100 years ago. Nan Enstad's Ladies of Labour, Girls of Adventure tells the story of women organising in New York's garment industry with a focus on the shirt-waist strike of 1909. On November 23, 1909, 20,000 shirt-waist makers, 85 to 90% of them women, walked off their jobs in hundreds of factories across New York City. Striking workers met to formulate grievances and demands. Union officials subsequently tried to collate the various factories' diverse grievances themselves. This process, Enstad argues, allowed a gap to emerge between workers' concerns and the demands officially articulated by the union bureaucracy. While no direct record exists of small shop meetings in the first days of the strike, a number of grievances that are not represented in the official union demands became part of the historical record. By looking closely at them, we can trace the particular concerns that striking women brought into the public debate, including sexual harassment. One source is an article written by a strike leader who had herself been a garment worker, Clara Lemlich. On the subject of sexual harassment, it says, The bosses in the shops are hardly what you would call educated men, and the girls to them are part of the machines they are running. They yell at the girls and the call them and the call them down. They don't use very nice language. They swear at us and sometimes do worse. They call us names that are not pretty to hear. Other women complained of foremen in certain factories who insult and abuse girls beyond endurance and the tyranny and sometimes worse of petty bosses and foremen. The vague language used by the women hints at the difficulty they face in being open about their experiences. Sexual harassment was not a recognised social phenomenon at the time and the label sexual harassment had not yet been coined. Today, the acknowledgement that sexual harassment does in fact exist undoubtedly makes it easier to spot inappropriate, inappropriate behaviour, but it's still not easy. In my experience, there is something about the way that sexualised language takes some of the most personal aspects of your life and makes them the subject of discussion in public that makes you feel like an object of ridicule in your place of work. Sexual harassment can be subtle. It can be dressed up as a flirting as flirting, a compliment or a joke. When you're in the middle of it, it can be bewildering and hard to identify how the power dynamics between men and women, between superiors and subordinates, 
interplay to equate to sexual harassment. During my times in RMT rep on London Underground, I can think of many times that women told me he did this or he said that. Very few called it sexual harassment. The difficulty of naming and articulating the problem persists, which highlights the urgency with which unions need to be to begin organising and campaigning around sexual harassment. By naming it, unions can send the message that such behaviour is not acceptable. Unions can indicate that male workers should reassess their actions and tell women that they are not on their own. Something else interests me about the vague language that the shirtwaist strikers use to describe sexual harassment, the specifically sexual element of the behaviour. Historian Merle Bulazic has written in her article Sexual Harassment in the Workplace, Historical Notes, that for women at the time, modesty and morality was more fiercely policed than ours is today. To admit that sexual conduct, contact, even conversation occurred was to be blamed for it. There is a much greater acceptance of women's sexuality in the 21st century, but sexism still places higher standards of sexual morality on women than men. I have worked with women, women cleaners on London Underground, who reported to the RMT that they had been sexually harassed by supervisors at work, but who were very concerned to keep their cases confidential for fear of people finding out. So when we wanted to run a public campaign, we couldn't, because the women who had experienced the harassment wanted to keep the matter private. When the shirtwaist strike is organised, it was still the case that women in paid employment were seen as having stepped out of their rightful place in the domestic sphere. In the late 19th century, discourse about women workers and prostitutes overlapped. The idea that factory girls had loose morals was commonplace. By discussing women's private life and body in the public sphere of paid employment, sexual harassment sends a message to women. You may claim to be equal, but you are not welcome here. It served to erode women's sense that they had a right to be there and a right to equality. This too resonates with my own experience of sexual harassment in transport, a a traditionally male-dominated industry. The labour market is still strongly segregated along gender lines, with women concentrated in the lowest paying sectors. Women's experience of trying to push into traditionally male, well-paid industries such as transport mirror what women experience when they first fought their way into the labour force. The sexual harassment I have faced and seen was not as light-hearted as it was sometimes presented. Its overtone was, the people who work here are men, you are not welcome here. The way that the trade union bureaucracy marginalised the issue of sexual harassment when setting demands for the shirtwaist strike is all too familiar. In workers' liberty, we argue for rank-and-file democracy. We are critical of the way that the trade union leadership controls disputes and takes decisions away from the workers who are striking, sidelining the voices of the workers involved. Bureaucracies have an inbuilt tendency to build disputes around issues that will bind workers in common course. But what about the issues that aren't common to all workers, such as sexual harassment? It wasn't going to be an easy issue to win on in 1909, so were the women supposed to forget about it? Even today, raising the issue of sexual harassment might mean the union asking some sections of the workforce to confront their own behaviour. It will not be an issue that unites everyone. That's why unions need to work hard to cultivate a sense of solidarity amongst workers instead of building disputes around self-interest alone. Sexual harassment may not immediately affect every worker, but eradicating it will build a stronger, more assertive culture across the workplace as a whole, which every worker will benefit from. There have always been barriers to trade unions organising around sexual harassment, but things change. 
Enstad notes that after 1909, women garment workers succeeded in getting sexual harassment listed amongst the official demands of subsequent strikes. By bringing the issue into the open in 1909, the women's strikers were part of a process of bringing the subject to wider public recognition. In recent years, the Me Too movement has stirred political and separate celebrity circles, but it still doesn't seem to have found its voice in the labour movement. But the shirt-waist strikers provide a hint of what is possible when women collectively begin to speak out about sexual harassment and back it up with action. If rank-and-file bodies and trade union branches across the movement start to have the conversation about what's going on in their workplace and what could be done about it, we can start tackling it head-on, inspired by the work of our sisters in 1909. Is de Beauvoir worth reading by Dave Kirk? What's often called second wave feminism is sometimes dated to begin with the publication of The Second Sex by Simone de Beauvoir. In 1949, de Beauvoir herself was critical of that claim later in life. Whilst acknowledging that she had some influence on the women's movement that grew in the 1960s, she argued that it had other, more pressing, contemporary influences. It's a long book, over 700 pages. So why is it worth reading a book long on how women have been treated in philosophy and literature and short on the specifically political? The pre-World War I British women's suffrage movement is glossed over in less than a page, but the George Eliot novel The Mill on the Floss gets three or four pages, for instance. The second sex is not some kind of bible of the women's movement. De Beauvoir herself, in interviews in the 1970s, admitted that her book had dated, that she was not addressing a live movement. Her engagement with the women's movement as an activist came later in life. But it's important because it brought to feminist thought a whole raft of ideas that still resonate today. One of the two main theses of the book is that although education and cult- that, sorry, that through education and culture, women are seen in both male and female consciousness as the other. She talks about how in Christianity and other religions, the male is seen as the ideal or default form, and women's bodies, experience and role has been defined through perceived difference to men's. Thus, humanity is male, and man defines woman not herself, but as relative to him. This sense of women as the other is all-pervasive within culture, literature, art and philosophy. It is why the French Revolution and the Age of Enlightenment were able to proclaim, proclaim universal human rights while not even considering if they applied to women. The idea of the other and othering has been taken up by cultural studies, critical theory and elsewhere. However, de Beauvoir saw the condition and position of women in society throughout history as determining this category of the other, not the othering determining the condition and position of women in society. The other major thesis speaks right to the heart of debates in the women's movement today. How much is womanhood socially, ideologically and economically defined by biology? De Beauvoir never uses the word gender, but makes a clear distinction between woman and biological sex. In her chapter on childhood, she famously says, one is not born, but rather one becomes woman. No biological, psychic or economic destiny defines the figure that the human female takes on in society. She doesn't entirely discount the role of biology or economic factors in historically driving women's oppression or as an aspect of it today, 
but in her view is not the determining factor. She says the woman's body is one of the essential elements of the situation she occupies in this world, but her body is not enough to define her. It has, it has a lived reality only as taken on by consciousness through actions and within a society. Biology alone cannot provide an answer to the question that concerns us. Why is woman the other? She also believed that modern technology, women's changing role in work and scientific advances such as birth control, automation and modern medicine have radically reduced women's potential enslavement to the species and made women's liberation possible in a far more radical way than it was in the past. As for the role of the economic in women's oppression, de Beauvoir generally saw herself as deeply influenced by Marxism, but not a Marxist as such. In 1949, she was somewhat close to the Stalinist Communist Party, although she criticises the revival under Stalin of patriarchal theories of marriage. She also made a distinction between the USSR and democratic socialism. She believed that being determines consciousness. Women's consciousness of herself is not defined by her sexuality alone, but reflects a situation that depends on society's economic structures. But she is critical of Engels' account of women's oppression beginning with private property. She is critical of an economist or an eco economist or reductionist explanation of women's oppression. Women's consciousness is not just defined by her relationship to private property and class struggle. There exists a broader existential architecture of women's oppression that goes beyond and predates the capitalist mode of production or even private property. There are contradictions in de Beauvoir's writing. She does not, not offer any real political answers and can end up seeming to point towards women's consciousness as the be-all and end-all of struggle. However, her ideas are important for socialist feminists interested in the whole of women's experience and consciousness. Combat Transphobia Through Education, Not Expulsions by Christy Neary. This article was originally published on Labour List and has been republished with the author's permission. Find it at www.labourlist.org slash 2020 slash 02 slash Labour should combat transphobia through education, not expulsions. There is undoubtedly an issue of transphobia in the Labour Party. The Labour campaign for trans rights has been set up to combat this, as well as fight for positive advances for the rights of trans and non-binary people. We do this with a recognition that the Labour Party and the wider Labour movement are crucial for winning and consolidating the rights of marginalised people within society. Of course, transphobia is prevalent within society as a whole, but we must put our own house in order if we are to change the world. This is a two-way street. The labour movement benefits from the most marginalised people being able to freely, confidently and safely organise themselves and fight for better conditions. We recognise that the fight against women's oppression and trans oppression are part of the same struggle, and those that seek to wrongly divide us only weaken our collective strength. We all stand to gain from the ability of trans people within labour and our trade unions to organise and win. It is important to address the question of how transphobia should be fought. As with similar issues of bigotry on the left, this is a point of contention. I am going to argue that we should not make the mistake of relying on bureaucratic machinery to solve problems of miseducation and ignorance. There have been popular calls amongst many of those in the party who oppose transphobia, and indeed anti-Semitism, to expel members who express such views. 
Despite this being one of the pledges put forward by LCTR, of which I am a member and co-founder, this position is understandable but misguided in my view. There are individual cases in which protracted campaigns of harassment and bullying have taken place against activists in the party. And in these cases, suspensions and expulsions may be appropriate course of action. But the problem of transphobia is widespread. If Labour were to attempt to purge the party of transphobic views bureaucratically, it is likely to end up expelling swathes of people whose transphobic views are not well thought out. Instead, they may be ignorant or see their advocacy of women's rights as being in conflict with trans rights. Such a wave of expulsions would not only distance us from many who could, with some patience and education, be won around to the course of trans rights. It would also serve to make party machinery the decision maker as to who has crossed the line and therefore must be expelled. Such a situation would make Labour's current inadequate democratic culture even worse. If not expulsion, then what? I would advocate for a concerted campaign of education on the topic of trans rights, as well as a culture of open debate and discussion. This is where idea, our ideas come from, and is the lifeblood of a vibrant Labour movement. This position can be caricatured. Some, some assume that what is being called for is a staged debate between a trans person on one side and someone who seeks to deny trans people of their right to any kind of dignified existence on the other. This is, of course, not what is meant. What I'm talking about is a is fora in which people are able to effectively challenge and convince those that hold transphobic views of the importance of supporting the rights of trans and non-binary people. We have to educate activists, including trans people, as well as cis allies, in order to give people the skills to confidently challenge these ideas wherever they rear their head in the labour movement. LCTR will have a key role to play in facilitating education in the Labour Party and creating a culture in which trans and non-binary people are able to engage in the movement that best represents their class interests. We all stand to gain from this and we hope that those concerned with fighting we all stand to gain from this and we hope that those concerned with fighting for it doesn't make sense at the end. Women's Fight Back, 8th of the 3rd, 2020, page 14. Who can beat Trump by Vicky Morris? Elizabeth Warren, would-be Democratic presidential nominee candidate, had a great line in the TV debate on the 19th of Feb. I'd like to talk about who we're running against. A billionaire who calls women fat broads and horse fates lesbians. And no, I'm not talking about Donald Trump. I'm talking about Mayor Bloomberg. Michael Bloomberg, the billionaire candidate, spending vast sums in his attempt to win the Democratic nomination, who brought himself a podium on the platform that night, the one uncomfortably next to Warren, as luck would have it. For that great put-down, Warren garnered much praise, alongside some inevitable misogynistic abuse, but also real results. After the debate, Bloomberg announced his company would release three women from non-disclosure agreements, NDAs, they had signed after making complaints about Bloomberg's sexism, although Warren has retorted that there are many more women in this situation than three and that we don't know the extent of the allegations against Bloomberg. 
The debate happened in the week of the trial of Harvey Weinstein, the Hollywood mogul whose sexually violent predatory behaviour, when, after decades, it was finally exposed, exposed, sparked the Me Too movement. Weinstein had just been convicted of sexually assaulting production assistants Mimi Haley and raping actress, actress Jessica Mann, a mere sample of his probable crimes. Other charges may yet follow. Following such developments, speaking truth to power when it appears in the shape of overbearing sexually predatory men is now allowed, praised even, in the US when it wasn't before. And that is a great gain. Yet against this backdrop, the Teflon President Trump hulks his misogyny, still throwing monstrous shadows. 22 women have publicly accused Trump of sexual misconduct. His sexual politics are in the same vein as Weinstein in the run-up to the presidential election in 2016. An audio came to light in which Trump boasted of foisting himself on women and grabbing them by the pussy. That is how he conducts himself. In office, what sort of policies does his sexism engender? After his election, Trump quickly set about undoing Obama's admittedly limited progressive policies. His acts have included rescinding the requirement in Obama's health care law that employers provide contraception coverage, rolling back a rule designed to close the gender pay gap, removing US funding to any overseas organisation that offers abortions, rolling back on workplace protections for LGBT people. Trump combines sexism with racism. Amongst his worst worst acts has been separating migrant parents from their children at the border. In July 2019, he tweeted that four Democratic members of Congress, four women of colour, should go back to the countries they came from. Those women were... Ilan Omar of Minnesota, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York, Rashida Tlaib of Michigan, and Ayana S. Presley of Massachusetts. Whether always acting from personal conviction or not on these issues, Trump plays up to his core constituencies, chief among them the Christian right, but beyond them also the racist far right. The Resistance Trump has always had more people against him than for him in approval ratings and it is worth remembering that he won the presidency with a minority of the popular vote. On the day after his inauguration ceremony, millions of women marched in opposition to Trump, many wearing knitted pink pussy hats. So who can cohere the resistance to Trump of whom these women protesters are but one component? albeit a crucial one, and prevented Trump's second term. Well, it does not at the moment look likely to be a woman. The contest for Democratic presidential candidate includes Amy Klobuchar and Elizabeth Warren. But while many feminists would love to foreground a woman president, male candidates are making the early running. An encouraging development is the good showing of the Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. Sanders calls himself a democratic socialist, although his conception of socialism is far from that of supporters of women's fight back. He is very much a reformer, though a radical one, while we are revolutionaries. 
He is not likely to radically reform the pro-capitalist Democratic Party, but he is combative against Trump and the right on all the important issues. He talks about the working class and could win the backing of the union movement, and he is leading a diverse, often young movement that promises to dramatically change US politics and pull it to the left. Eric Lee, a convener of the London for Bernie group, argues, Sanders' unifying class-wide message of solidarity is so powerful. Alone among the Democratic candidates, he offers real answers to those working-class voters who abandoned Obama for Trump four years ago. If, as predicted, he wins the Democratic nomination, he will need to sharpen that message and push back against the racism and sexism that have become the signatures of the Trump presidency. The Democratic candidate will be announced in the summer and the election takes place in November. Between now and then, a lot of a lot needs to happen to see Sanders triumph over Trump. But one thing is certain, the movement to which Sanders' candidacy gives expression holds out a rich prospect for the future, for women as much as anyone. Women's Fight Back, 8th of the 3rd, 20, page 15. The Socialist History of International Women's Day. International Women's Day has its roots in some of the most significant moments in our movement's history. It is our task to remember that history and to turn International Women's Day into a day of strikes and struggle once more. It was at the Second International Conference of Socialist Women held in Copenhagen in 1910 that the idea of an International Women's Day was first formally agreed. German delegates Louise Sietz and Clara Zetkin brought the proposal in front of 100 women delegates from 17 countries. The resolution read, In agreement with the class-conscious political and trade union organisations of the proletariat of their respective countries, Socialist women of all nationalities have to organise a special Women's Day, which must, above all, promote the propaganda of female suffrage. This demand must be discussed in connection with the women, the whole women's question, according to the t- socialist conception. These delegates had aspirations much grander than simply winning universal female suffrage. They sought the triumph of socialism, the liberation of workers from drudgery and wage slavery, and the liberation of women from the shackles of domestic slavery. The first official International Women's Day was celebrated on March 19th, 1911, a date chosen to celebrate the 1848 revolution in Berlin. In Germany, more than a million women, mostly but not exclusively organised in the SPD and the unions, took to the streets. They put on dozens of public assemblies, over 40 in Berlin alone, to discuss the issues they were facing in their day-to-day lives and prospects for the women's movement. That same year, workers in the United States chose March the 8th for their Women's Day. It was a significant date. In 1857, garment workers in New York City had struck and staged a demonstration against inhumane conditions and low pay. 
Fast forward to March the 8th, 1908, and again, 50,000 women garment workers, many of them Jewish immigrants, went on strike and marched through New York's Lower East Side to demand higher pay, shorter working hours, voting rights, and an end to child labour. Bread and roses became the slogan of the garment workers' struggle. They didn't merely seek enough money to eat, but fulfilling and enriched lives worth living. From 1914, it became common practice to celebrate International Women's Day on March the 8th. A famous poster depicting a woman dressed in black and waving a red flag, which Workers' Liberty has adopted for its logo, marked the occasion in Germany. It was considered so dangerous in the run-up to the First World War that police prohibited it from being posted or distributed publicly. The day turned into a mass action against war and imperialism. Three years later, March the 8th, 1917, IW International Women's Day witnessed the explosion of the February Revolution in Russia. In spite of opposition from Bolshevik men, working class women in Petrograd turned International Women's Day into a day of mass demonstrations for bread and peace, demanding the end to World War I, to food shortages and to starism. They marched from factory to factory, calling their fellow workers onto the streets and engaging in violent clashes with the police and troops. Trotsky wrote in the history of the Russian Revolution, A great role is played by women workers in relationship between workers and soldiers. They go up to the cordons more boldly than men, take hold of the rifles, beseech almost command, put down your bayonets, join us. The soldiers are excited, ashamed, exchange anxious glances, waver. Someone makes up his mind first and the bayonets rise guiltily above the shoulders of the advancing crowd. Not only did these women workers spark the beginning of the Russian Revolution, they were the motor that drove it forward. Seven days later, Tsar Nicholas II abdicated.